<clears throat> Amen. All right, well, we're there in Matthew chapter number 8. And if you remember last Sunday night, we started a brand new series on the subject of the life of Peter. And we're doing a systematic study uh, through the life of the Apostle Peter. And we're going through it chronologically to the best of uh, our ability to figure out the chronology in the Gospels. Sometimes it's a little complicated uh, with the Gospels. But if you remember last week, we started uh, first by learning of the first major event in Peter's life. And I preached a sermon called The Call of Peter. Tonight, we're going to learn about um, what's possibly the second, maybe third, major event that happened in Peter's life as far as it being documented in Scripture, and it is about Peter's mother-in-law, and it's about the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And I want you to notice there, and there's not, it's mentioned in three different Gospels, it's, there's not a lot uh, that's mentioned, but it's actually mentioned in three different uh, of the Gospel writers, which is pretty substantial. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 14, the Bible says this, and when Jesus was coming to Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and ministered unto them. And when the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his sword, and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, himself took our infirmity, infirmities and bear our sicknesses. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to give you just two thoughts in regards to the story, and then I want to uh, talk to you about something, a lie that is put out about the Apostle Peter that's not true, which is this idea that Peter was the first pope. So let me begin by this, and if you're writing down notes, I'd encourage you to write this down. The first thing we learn from the story of Peter's mother-in-law being healed is this. This story illustrates substitutionary atonement. And I realize that that's kind of a, a, a big word, and it's a theological term, but it's good from time to time to sit down and to think about Doctrine. Doctrine is extremely important. And what the Bible tells us is that we are not to be uh, uh, just moved about with every wind of doctrine. And we need to know not only uh, what we what to do, but what we believe. And, and we emphasize practical sermons around here a lot and try to teach you just things that you should be doing in your life. But we should also emphasize doctrine and teaching and not just what to do, but what we believe about the Bible. And this story uh, is an illustration that we can look at and learn about this doctrine of substitutionary atonement, which is how you got saved. That's how we get saved. It's how salvation works. And I want you to notice in verse 14 that it says there, and when Jesus was coming to Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever. And you'll notice throughout the Gospels that uh, sickness often is, is an illustration of sin. You're there in Matthew chapter 8. Go to Mark uh, chapter number 2. Mark chapter number 2 and look at verse 12. So just one book over. Mark chapter 2 <clears throat> and look at verse 12. Notice what the Bible says. And I want to show you that a sin, in fact, Jesus himself referred to sin as, as sickness, as a disease. Mark chapter 2 and verse 16 the Bible says, and when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, so these are the bad people, the bad class, the publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, how is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? And then I want you to notice how Jesus responds in the illustration that he gives, verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, they that are whole need, uh, they that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick 
I came not to call the righteous, notice, but sinners to repentance. So he gives this illustration, and he says, look, I'm, I'm hanging out with sinners. I'm um, with these publicans and sinners, because they that are whole need not a physician. And he plays into this idea that uh, there is, that sickness is a representation of sin. And the reason for that is because we are sick spiritually with sin. And you, you know the verse, you don't have to turn there. In fact, you're there in Mark uh, chapter 2. Go to Mark chapter 1. But in Romans 6.23, you know the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. And the truth is this, that when Adam fell, when Adam and Eve fell, and they brought sin into the world, the Bible says that, wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, we were all infected, not with Adam's sin, but with the sin nature, and we all have this sin sickness running through our bodies, that will result in death. Now, that's not to excuse sin. That's not to sit there and say, well, I'm an alcoholic because it's a, a sickness that I have no control over. We, we're not uh, trying to minimize responsibility. But the idea is this, that throughout the Bible, we have this illustration of, of sickness and sin. And I want you to notice that here we have Peter's mother-in-law who was sick. And then I want you to notice how she got healed. Mark chapter 1, look at verse 29. Now, we we were in Matthew just a second ago, but I want to show you the same story in Mark because there's an emphasis here that I'd like you to see. Mark chapter 1, verse 29. And forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Notice verse 30. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever, and anon they tell him, talking about Jesus, of her. Look at verse 31. And he came and took her, Peter mother, Peter's mother-in-law, by the hand. I want you to notice that whenever you read these stories of, of Peter's mother-in-law being healed, and, and we see this throughout other stories as well, but specifically at this one, you'll notice that there's an emphasis in the fact that Jesus touched her. He put his hands on her. And by the way, please understand this. This was not, I don't think this was just some, you know, little fever. She just had a fever and she didn't, uh, she, she wasn't feeling well. We're also told in another gospel that it was a great fever. I believe that this was probably a big deal, a big a sickness that she had. And of course, you know, we live in modern times where fevers are not that big of a deal. But there was a time where if you got a fever, it could kill you. And I think that this lady is having this great fever, this great sickness. She's maybe on her uh, deathbed. And here we're told that Jesus, verse 31, Mark 131, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And immediately the fever left her and she ministered unto them. See, the only one that could help her was Jesus, which is why they brought Jesus to her, which is why they told Jesus of her. And in the same way, the only one that can heal us of our sin sickness is Jesus. And by the way, this is why Jesus is called the great physician. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now go back to Matthew chapter 8 and look at verse 15. And I want you to notice something in this story because I told you that this story illustrates substitutionary atonement. And that term, that theological term, that doctrinal term is this, that the way that you and I receive salvation is that there was a substitute. The way that our sin has been atoned for is that there was a substitute made for our sin. There was an exchange made for our sin. My sin was placed upon someone else, and that person's righteousness, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, his righteousness was placed upon me. And we see that illustrated in this story. Are you there in Matthew 8? Look at verse 15. And he, that's Jesus, 
touched her. Again, notice the emphasis. There's physical touch. He physically touched her. He took her by the hand. Uh, in, in Mark 131, in Matthew 8.15, we're told, He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and ministered unto them. And I want you to notice that verse 16 and 17 are in the same context. They're in the same context of the story of Peter's mother-in-law being healed. Notice verse 16. When the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. He's already cast out devils before this point. And I believe that when he shows up at Peter's mother-in-law's house and he heals her of her sickness, word gets out that Jesus is healing people and that even they are bringing to him people that are possessed with devils and he cast out the spirits with his word. Notice the last part of verse 16, and healed all that were sick. Now, I know you're in church on a Sunday night. Obviously, you're familiar with the Bible, and you know that Jesus went around, went about doing good. He uh, taught, he had parables, he performed miracles, he healed people, and you know uh, these stories. We've all heard of him making the blind to see, and the deaf to hear, and the lame to walk. We've known those things, but I want you to notice in verse 17, there's a little bit of insight into how he healed people that you may not have been aware of. Notice verse 17. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Notice how Jesus healed. Himself took our infirmities and bare our sickness. I want you to understand that when Jesus walked into the house of Peter's mother-in-law and he touched her and her fever left her, it wasn't that he just miraculously, because he's God, though he could have just made the fever go away, he actually absorbed her fever. He took her fever. The Bible says that he himself took our infirmities and bare our sickness. He took the diseases. He took the sicknesses. He took the bad health of those that he healed. And I want you to notice, not only did he take their sickness, but they took his virtue. Go to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. You're there in Matthew chapter 8. Go to Mark chapter 5. Now in Mark 5, we have a different story of a different woman being healed. But I want you to notice what the Bible tells us and the details we get about this healing. Mark 5, verse 24. Mark chapter 5 and verse 24, the Bible says this, And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him, that's Jesus, and thronged him, that means that they're pressing upon him, they're brushing up against him, there's a big crowd that's just kind of surrounding him. Notice verse 25. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood, 12 years. So we have a lady here. She's been sick for 12 years. She's got an issue of blood and had suffered many things of many physicians. She's seen many doctors. She's tried to get help for it and had spent all that she had and was nothing better. She'd gone to the doctors. She'd spent all her money and she had not got better, but rather grew worse. Notice verse 27. When she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. Notice again the emphasis on the touch. She touched his garment, for she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus immediately... Knowing in himself, notice, Jesus, he's being thronged by these people, right? He's walking in this place. Everyone's touching him. Everybody's grabbing him. Every, people want to just be able to say, I touched him, you know, I was close to him. I saw him. He's got all these people. But when this woman touches him, he feels it. 
And Jesus, verse 30, immediately knowing in himself, notice that virtue, the word virtue uh, could be a reference to power, to righteousness, to his uh, goodness, to his excellence. Knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, who touched my clothes? And of course, in verse 31, the response is, and his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitudes thronging thee, and sayest thou who touched me? You know, and, and, and you know, these disciples, they, you know, they kind of have a little bit of an attitude here, right? Because they're like, everyone's touching you, Jesus. Are you serious? You see all these people touching you? You're asking, thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou who touched me? Notice verse 32. And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. And I want you to understand that when Jesus healed people, he wasn't just abracadabra doing magic and making their disease disappear, though he could have. He's God. He could have just made them disappear. But the point is this, that when he healed people, he actually observed, uh, absorbed their sickness and they absorbed his virtue he took he carried the bible says himself carried our infirmities he took their sickness they took his righteousness he took their sickness they took their power and you say well what's the big deal what's the point in that go to second corinthians chapter five second corinthians chapter five you're there in matthew mark luke john acts romans first corinthians second corinthians you say what's the big deal with all these stories of people being healed what's the point The point is this, that the same way that these people were healed physically is the same way that you and I get healed spiritually. It's called substitutionary atonement. And the idea is this, that when I got saved and when you got saved, it's not that my sins just disappeared, but they were absorbed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not just, and it's not just, that I became sinless, I actually absorbed his righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 21. And we could spend the whole night going through verses on this. I'm not going to take the time to do that. Maybe another sermon another night. But I just want to give you one verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Bible says this, For he, this is in reference to God the Father, hath made him, this is in reference to Jesus Christ, notice, to be sin for us who knew no sin. Jesus was sinless. He was perfect. He knew no sin. But on the cross, he was made to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. See, the story of Peter's mother-in-law and the story of the woman with the running issue and really probably every story in the Gospels that have to do with Jesus healing someone is actually just an illustration. It is an illustration of salvation and specifically of substitutionary atonement. And you need to understand this doctrinally speaking, it is not. You say, oh, when God sees me, he sees me. And we, we say these things, and, and it's fine. I, I don't have a problem with saying these things. I say them myself. When God sees me, he sees me clean. When God sees me, he sees me justified. It's just as if I'd never sinned, and all those things are good. But here's the bottom line. The truth is this. When God sees me, he doesn't see me at all. He sees Jesus. Amen. I'm in Christ, and he's in me. 
He took my sin. He paid for my sin upon the cross. And I took his righteousness. And by the way, this is why the Bible says that our sins are as filthy rags, that our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Uh, It's not my righteousness that's going to get me into heaven. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because at salvation, he took my sin and I took his virtue, his righteousness. I took his power. The Bible even tells us that we have uh, been given a divine nature as opposed to our sinful nature. So the story of Peter's mother-in-law illustrates substitutionary atonement. But let me give you a second point if you would make your way back to Matthew chapter 8. And let me say this. Not only does the story of Peter's mother-in-law illustrate substitutionary atonement, but the story of Peter's mother-in-law demonstrates salvation's purpose. It demonstrates the purpose of salvation, or I should say a purpose in salvation, and we understand that the primary purpose is that we would be saved from our sins. We've just talked about that. Substitutionary atonement. He took my sins, I took his righteousness. There's no works there, by the way. There's no me repenting of my sins, there's no me getting baptized, there's no me living a good life. Look, either he took my sins and I took his righteousness, or I'm going to die and go to hell because that's the only way I can get to heaven. There's no one perfect enough to get it into heaven. The only one that's perfect is the Lord Jesus Christ, and I better be in Him if I'm going to be saved. 1 John 2, 2, you have to turn there. I'll just read this for you. The Bible says this, And He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He paid for the whole world's sin. Now, that doesn't mean that the whole world's saved. He paid for everyone to be sinned, but to be saved, but they've got a choice whether they'd like to receive it or reject it. They must call upon Christ in faith to do that. We understand that we're saved from sin, but when it comes to salvation, we need to understand this, and it's illustrated here in the story of Peter's mother-in-law, that we were not only saved from sin, but we were saved to serve. Are you there in Matthew 8? I just want you to notice this, and if you look at it in every gospel, where this story is mentioned, you'll notice that this is an emphasis in all of the stories. Matthew chapter 8, verse 15. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose. Notice, and this is emphasized, every time you read about Peter's mother-in-law being healed, this is what's emphasized. And she arose and ministered unto them. What's emphasized is this, that she was laying sick in bed, And when he took her sickness and she took his virtue, she arose and she ministered. The word minister means to serve. She woke up, she got up, and she began to serve. And let me tell you something. You were saved from your sin. But please understand this. You were saved to serve. He said, what should happen after salvation? Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. If you start from the book of Revelation and head backwards, you've got Revelation, Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, 2nd, and 1st Peter. 1st Peter chapter 4. What should happen after salvation? Was I just saved to sit in church? Mm -mm. You were saved to serve. Say, well, then why do I go to church? Because this is where we motivate and mobilize you for the work of the ministry. But you were saved to serve. You were saved to arise and minister unto, and by the way, it says unto them, not just Jesus, but all that were there. In 1 Peter 4, we have Peter speaking about hospitality and service, and and I can't, you know, and obviously I can't prove this, and I'm not saying that this is the case, but I can't help but wonder if when Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, penned 1 Peter 4, 9, 10, and 11, 
if he wasn't thinking in his mind, if it wasn't uh, a running through his thoughts, the event of his mother-in-law being healed. Because notice, when she was healed, she began to minister. She had all these people over at her house, and she began to be hospitable. Notice First Peter 4 and verse 9. Notice what Peter writes. He says, use hospitality one to another without grudging. And that word use sounds kind of like, are we supposed to use it like a tool? But the idea is this, that we are supposed to use hospitality on one another. We're supposed to use it, yes, as a tool, not to manipulate, but to minister, to serve. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. Notice verse 10. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Here's what he's saying. If you've received the grace of God, if you've received the gift of God, For by grace are you saved through faith, right? Not not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. He says, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Notice verse 11, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, meaning serve, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. You say, oh, I'm going to serve the Lord. Good. Well, you get to serve God with the ability that God gives you. If you woke up this morning, it's because God allowed you to wake up. If you walked into church tonight, it's because God allowed you to walk into church tonight. If you drove to church, it's because God allowed you to drive to church. If you, uh, whatever you do, it's because God allows you. And here's what he says. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here's the point that I'm trying to make, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, because in about a month we're going to have our big worker appreciation weekend, and I don't want to steal my own thunder from there. But let me just say this. God saved you not to sin. He saved you to serve. And here's what I'd like you to do. Between now and worker appreciation dinner at the end of November, or uh, weekend, the Sunday at the end of November, ask yourself this question. How do I serve in my local church? And don't answer the question out loud, but you should answer this question. How do I serve in my local church? Go to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Now here's the problem I have with preaching on serving is that I've got some of you and I'm thankful for you, and I love you, and I think you're amazing, and I think you're great. I've got some of you that you do so much around here, you serve so much. I mean, I, I'm starting to feel guilty. I'm either going to, you know, I'm going to have to put you on the payroll or something, because you just serve so much. And there are just some people who have that gift of serving, and, and, and I preach about serving, and they always want to volunteer, they always want to do it. And I appreciate, I appreciate you. But I am not talking to you tonight. I am talking to you who ask yourself this question, how do I serve in my local church? And then it's like crickets. If you can't answer this question, how do I serve in my local church? If you can't answer that question, I'm just here to tell you, God saved you to serve. So what are you doing? Romans 16 and verse 1, the Bible says this, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Sincrea. God saved us to serve. He did not save us to sit. He did not heal us to lay there in bed. He wanted us to get up and to minister. So here's the question. I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm just trying to help you. How do you serve in your local church? How do you serve? 
in your local church. Go, go back to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. We're talking about the story of Peter's mother-in-law. The first thing we learn from Peter's mother-in-law is this. That it illustrates substitutionary atonement. He touched her. He absorbed her fever. And she absorbed his virtue. The second thing we learn from the story of Peter's mother-in-law is that it demonstrates salvation's purpose. And here's the purpose of salvation. We're saved from our sins, but we're saved to serve. We're not saved to sit. We're saved to serve. So how do you serve? How do you serve in your local church? But let me end by talking about this question, and that's a little misleading because it sounds like we're almost done and we're not. <laughs> but let me end by, by just answering this question about Peter, and I think it's very appropriate to answer this question tonight while we're in this uh, context of Peter's mother-in-law, because there's a lie put out there by the Roman Catholic Church, which is that Peter was the first pope. And tonight, what I'd like to do is answer the question, was Peter the first pope, was Peter the first pope? And I want to give you three reasons as to why we know or how we know that Peter was most definitely not the first pope, and the Roman Catholic Church is lying and extremely and completely wrong about Peter. You say, how do you know that Peter is not the first pope? Well, number one, because Peter had a wife. Popes have no wives. Are you there in Matthew 8? We've been looking at it. Look at verse 14. And when Jesus was come into Peter's house, he, Jesus, saw his, Peter's, wife's mother laid, uh, laid and sick of a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and ministered unto them. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 30, if you'd go there, just one book over. Mark chapter 1 and verse 30, the Bible says this, But Simon's wife's mother lay sick, of a fever, and anon they tell him of her. We're told that Jesus healed Peter, Simon, both the names of the same person, his wife's mother, his mother-in-law. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You've got, you're there in Mark, you're going to go Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Now, look, here's the point. If you have a mother-in-law, it's because you have a wife. Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law because he was married. He, Jesus, the Bible says, he saw his wife's mother, Simon's wife's mother, Mark 1, chapter 30. And the point is this, Peter had a wife. Popes have no wives. So therefore, Peter was not a pope. 1 Corinthians 9, look at verse 5. Just to put the final nail in the coffin in regards to Peter's uh, uh, marital situation. First Corinthians 9, look at verse 5. Have we not power to lead about a sister? Now, this is the Apostle Paul speaking. Paul was a single man, but he was talking about the fact that he could get married if he wanted to. And he's talking about he could be supported by the church if he wanted to. He's choosing not to, but he could if he wanted to. Notice what he says. He says, have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles? He's saying, I'm, I could be like the other apostles and have a wife as well as the other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord, and then he says this, and Cephas, who's Cephas? That's Peter. 
And, and here he's telling us, look, I could be like all the other apostles and have a wife. He said, and the brethren of the Lord and Cephas. He's saying, look, Cephas is married. I could be like Cephas. I choose not to. But there we have even more proof that Peter had a wife. So was Peter the first pope? Well, number one, Peter had a wife. Popes have no wives. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you find all the T-books, they're all clustered together. 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, 1st Timothy chapter 4. Let me just say this about this doctrine, because the Roman Catholic Church teaches that the spiritual leadership, which they call priests, but now they're starting to call them pastors, that they should not be married, that they should be celibate. They teach that the priests should not be married. They teach that as they go up the, the ranks, they should not be married. And the Pope himself is not married. And this is their spiritual leadership. They say our spiritual leaders should not get married. This is the opposite of what the Bible teaches. The Bible actually teaches that in order to be a pastor, you have to be the husband of one wife. And the doctrine, the teaching, that people should not get married. And obviously, if you're not married, then, then there's nothing wrong with that. And maybe you'll get married one day, or maybe God would have you not get married. There's nothing wrong with that. But this doctrine that teaches that forbidding people from allowing them to get married, that is a wicked doctrine. First Timothy 4, look at verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. So we're about to learn about these seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. First Timothy chapter 4, look at verse 3. Forbidding to marry. Forbidding to marry. When someone forbids other people from getting married, according to the Bible, that is a seducing spirit and doctrines of devils. He says forbidding to marry. That sounds like the Roman Catholic Church. And then he says this, and commanding to abstain from meats. Doesn't that sound like the Roman Catholic Church? With their Lent, their Lent, or whatever, you know. And commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. So, if the question is asked, go to the book of Acts if you wouldn't mind. You're there in 1 Corinthians. If you go backwards, you're going to go Romans, Acts, Acts chapter 10. If the question is asked, was Peter the first pope? Well, you must consider that Peter had a wife and popes have no wives. But here's the second reason why I don't believe that Peter was a pope. And the second reason is this. Peter refused worship. Popes receive worship. Notice Acts chapter 10 and verse 25. In Acts chapter 10, we have Peter who has uh, been summoned to the house of Cornelius and he's there for the purpose of preaching the gospel. Acts chapter 10, verse 25. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him. Now remember, Cornelius has seen a vision and he's been told to bring Peter and that Peter's going to bring this message to him. And the Bible says, and as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. So Cornelius falls down at the feet of Peter and he begins to worship him. Notice how Peter responds, verse 26. But Peter took him up, saying, stand up, I myself also am a man. Peter said, I'm a man just like you. Don't worship me. Because the only person that should be worshipped is God. But yet today the Pope, he's not like Peter He's not like Peter who refuses to receive worship. No, the Pope receives worship. I mean, just watch the Pope. 
as he goes to all these different places. He's got all sorts of people groveling at his feet, falling down before him, kissing his hands, kissing his feet. The popes receive worship, yet Peter refused worship. He said, I myself also am a man. Don't worship me. Don't bow down before me. Go to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5. Towards the beginning of the Old Testament, you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Joshua chapter 5. And let me just answer this real quickly. Because when you bring up this point, here's what people will say. They'll say, oh, they're not worshiping the Pope. When they bow down in front of him and grovel at his feet, they kiss his big toe and they kiss his hands, they're not worshiping. They're just bowing down. They're not worshiping. They're just being reverent and bowing down. But here's what you need to understand. We have a misunderstanding of the word worship. Because today, even we as Christians, we've been fooled by the liberal Christians out there who tell us that worship is something you do in a service, right? They have their worship service. And what do they do in their worship service? God is so amazing. Here's the problem with that. Nowhere in the Bible do you find that as being worship. You know that all throughout the Bible, worship consistently, worship consistently is bowing down in front of someone? I could, sh- I could show you 100 verses. I'm not going to take the time to do it. But let me show you a couple. Joshua chapter 5, verse 14. Joshua chapter 5, verse 14. And he said, nay, this is... Jesus Christ in the Old Testament appearing to Joshua. Joshua asked him, are you for us or against us? And he said, nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua, notice his response, fell on his face to the earth and did worship. And said unto him, what saith my Lord unto his servant? See, in the Bible, worship is bowing down before God. It's not standing up at a rock concert with your lighter. That's not worship. Worship is bowing down. It's getting down uh, prostrate in your, in your face before his feet and worshiping him. And here we're told that Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship. Go to Psalm 95. Psalm 95. If you open up your Bible, just right in the center, you're more than likely following the book of Psalms. Psalm 95. When you get there, do me a favor, put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there because we're going to leave Psalms and we're going to come back to it. So I want you to be able to do it quickly. Psalm 95 and look at verse 6. Like I said, I can show you lots of verses. I'm not going to take the time to do that, but I just want to show you that in the Bible, in the Bible, bowing down is the, is synonymous with worship. That is what worship is. Psalm 95, look at verse 6. Oh, come. Psalm 95, verse 6. Oh, come. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Why does the Bible say that? Here's why it says that. Because that's what worship is. Worship is to bow down. So when Cornelius bowed down before Peter, Peter said, stand up. I also am a man like you. And he refused to allow someone to bow in front of him because he refused worship. But you know what popes do today? They receive worship. They allow people to bow down. In front of them. And listen, we should not bow before anybody except God. Any man, any man, you say, oh, pastor, I appreciate you. And I'm thankful if you appreciate me. But remember, I'm a man just like you. I'm a sinner just like you. And we ought not bow down in front of men. We should only bow our knee 
to God. So when it comes to uh, this question, was Peter the first pope? Go to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew in the, New, in the New Testament, first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 16. Was Peter the first pope? Well, number one, Peter had a wife. Popes have no wives. Number two, Peter refused worship. Popes receive worship. But let me give you a third reason why I do not believe that Peter was the first pope. Because Peter was the stone, or a stone, and the church was founded upon the rock, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in Matthew 16, we'll have an entire sermon out of Matthew 16 at some point in the life of Peter. But let me just show you, because this is where the Roman Catholics take their teaching, that, the, that, pope was, that Peter was the first pope, and that the church was founded upon Peter. In Matthew 16 and verse 15, the Bible says this, He saith unto them, Jesus is asking a question to his disciples. He asks this question, But whom say ye that I am? He just got done asking them, Who do men say that I am? And they gave him all sorts of answers. Now he's saying, Okay, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He affirmed the fact that he was the chosen Messiah and that he was deity, that he was the Christ and the Son of the living God. Verse 17, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. What is Jesus referring to? What, what, was, what is it that flesh and blood did not reveal to Peter, but my Father which is in heaven? It was that statement, that truth. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, Jesus is referring back to the statement that Peter made. Peter said, Thou art the Christ. Jesus said, Whom say ye that I am? And Peter responds, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, You know that statement? You know that truth you just said, Peter? That was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. That was revealed to you by my Father, which is in heaven. That's the context that we enter into verse 18. And I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock. Now the Roman Catholic Church will say, see, there, Jesus is looking at Peter and he says, you're Peter and upon this rock, Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But I will prove to you that that is not what Jesus was saying. When Jesus said, upon this rock, he is referring to the truth that just came out of Peter's mouth when he said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. You say, well, how do you know that? Here's how I know that. Because all throughout the Bible, all throughout the Bible, the rock has always been God. Go to Psalm 18. Did you keep your place in Psalms? Go back to Psalms real quickly. Psalm 18. And again, I could show you tons of verses from all over the Bible. I'm not going to take the time to do that. I'll just show you a few from Psalms. Psalm 18. You say, who's the rock? Who's the rock? And it's not some wrestler, by the way. <laughs> Psalm 18 and verse 2. Notice what the Bible says. The Lord is my rock. You see the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D? The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Notice, my God. The Lord is my rock. Then he says, my God. My God is the Lord. My God is my rock, my strength, in whom I will trust, my buckler, and the horn of my salvation, and my high tower. So, oh, well, that's just one verse. Okay, how about verse 31? Same psalm. Psalm 18, 31. 
For who is God? Save the Lord. Now, when it says save the Lord there, what that means is except for the Lord. He's, he's, he's saying, who is God? Save the Lord, except for the Lord. Or who is a rock? Save our God. He says, who is a rock? Except for our God. You say, why? Because the Lord is my rock, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust. Look at verse 46, same chapter, Psalm 18, verse 46. We go to a lot of chapters. We go to a lot of references. I'm just showing you one psalm. Psalm 18, verse 46. The Lord liveth, and blessed be my rock, and let the God of my salvation be exalted. All throughout the Bible, all throughout the Bible, the rock, all throughout the Old Testament, the Lord, God, He has been the rock. But yet the Roman Catholic Church will say, no, Peter is the rock. Okay, there's a problem with that. Go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. The problem with saying that Peter is the rock is that it goes in, in, in complete contradiction of what Jesus said. John chapter 1 and verse 40. Remember when Jesus met Peter for the first time? John chapter 1 and verse 40. Remember he changed his name? He gave him a new name? John chapter 1 verse 40. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas. Simon, Peter, Cephas. These are all names for the same person. Jesus changed his name. He says, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas. You say, well, what does Cephas mean? Well, the Bible, it's its own dictionary, which is by interpretation a rock. Is that what it says? No. Which is by interpretation a stone. See, Peter, the name Peter means stone. But it doesn't mean rock. Because throughout the rock, see, it would have been, it would be throughout the, the, the world, throughout the history of the world, the rock has always been God. It would have been blasphemous for Jesus to look at Peter and say, you're the rock. Because these believers would have known that throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, the rock has always been our God. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verse 4. You're there in John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. And let me just say this. The rock is God. Jesus is God. So you know what that means? Jesus is the rock. Let me, let me prove it to you. 1 Corinthians 10, look at verse 4. And did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Peter. Is that what it says? That rock was Christ. You say, I thought God was the rock. Well, Jesus is God. Christ is God. So he's the rock. And when Jesus looked at Peter and he said, Thou art Peter, he wasn't saying, Thou art Peter and upon this rock. He was actually saying, Remember, Peter, you're just a pebble. You're just a stone. Thou art Peter and upon this rock, 
Upon this truth that you just declared, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. See, the church was not founded upon the stone of a man named Peter, but the church was founded upon the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is this, if the question is this, was Peter the first pope? You need to consider the fact that, number one, Peter had a wife, and popes have no wives. Number two, Peter refused worship, and popes receive worship. But number three, Peter was a stone, Cephas, and the church was founded upon the rock, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for allowing us to be able to study the Bible and learn the Bible and understand the Bible. And Lord, I pray that you would help us always to search the Scriptures, Lord, and to be able to get our doctrine from the teaching of the Word of God. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for substitutionary atonement. That you took our sin and we took your righteousness. And that is the only way that we can be saved. It's not by our works. It's not by our deeds. It's through the righteousness that is found in you. And Lord, I pray you'd help us all to be mindful of the fact that we were not saved to sin, we were saved to serve. And Lord, help us to be actively serving in the work of the ministry. We love you. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.